Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer or artist and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field, along with contest winners and a few surprise guests. We're here this week at the workshop for volume 38 in 2022. I'm speaking with Dean Wesley Smith, who interestingly enough, was the first person to cross the stage having been published in Writers of the Future Volume 1. Welcome, Dean. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So we wanted to have, a, this was like a, a special topic that we were going to cover tonight. Um, I sent you an essay on booze and taboos. It was an essay written by Elwin Hubbard. Mm-hmm. And um, it's something that is very interesting. When I've, I've talked to various judges over the years on their like favorite essays, and I've had um, Dave Farland, Orson Scott Card, Tim Powers, I'll talk about different ones, but the, the subject of booze and taboos, um, I thought would be working with you would be especially pertinent. Um, so yeah. let's get on with that. So first of all, just your overview of the essay itself. I actually love the essay. Um, I had forgotten, I'd read it quite a while back, but when you use the title, you know, the title doesn't really stick with it real well. Booze. It's not booze like alcohol. It's booze like in ghosts. Boo. Um, boo and taboo. Booze and taboo. Um, it is, um, the topic of it is fantastic. Um, because what I try to teach a lot in our workshops is that writers write what they want to write. Mm-hmm. And if an editor or somebody doesn't want it quite in a certain way, you write what you want to write, but you write it you know, to the point where the editor can't say no. And and that's basically what Hubbard was talking about, one hundred percent. He was he did it in a in a uh, you know the nineteen thirties kind of flowery language that a lot of the articles were back at that point, especially in the writing magazines and stuff. Yeah. But um, you know Lester Dent and a few others that exact same kind of language. But it's very clear what that topic is, and that is write what you want to write. It's it really is one of the secrets of writing fiction. Now. Some of the stuff that he went into, like in, in Pulp Fiction, there was this idea of the taboos, okay? Mm-hmm. A science fiction story has got to be this, this, and this. A mystery has mm-hmm. got to have these elements. A adventure has got to have this. Mm-hmm. And um, the women were always stereotypically caricatures. Mm-hmm. They're cardboard cutouts of, of a female uh, You've got to have the big gruff, you know, detective that was going to be there. The and hero, you know, find yeah. the crook, and and he's going to whack him. You know, the um, Philip Marlowe, yeah. something, just something like that. It's going to be that's that's what's got to be. Uh, science fiction has got to be the, you know, you have your evil alien, and you're going to come there, and you got the rocket ship, and with the ray gun, you're going to. Sh- what it is? It's like this is how you have to do it, and mm-hmm. he intentionally would try to take those rules and just turn them on their heads. So like, in fact, the show we just did tonight, the professor was a thief mm-hmm. in, in the, um, my best uh, science fiction stories. He was asked like, what's your favorite, you know, story. And he said, this one here he wanted to do it wasn't necessarily the best literature, but at that time period, mm-hmm. you know, scientists had to blow things up. Yep. That was what the thing, and yep. this one here shrank things down. So he just turned it, you know, he would do that. So, how have you found that for yourself in, in your well, I'm, career? Well, I'm, I'm a pulp fan. I've read, you know, and collected over the, over the decades more thousands of pulps. In, in, and 
what was interesting back then is that all the magazines had those rules or taboos that, you know, they said, you can't do this if you're going to be in this magazine, you can't do this. And the stories that were all really good were when the writers like L. Ron Hubbard pushed past those taboos and did something that they wanted to do. When you flash forward to 2022, it's exactly the same. The readers, the editors, they don't know what they want, but they'll put out what they call nowadays, they're not called taboos, they're called guidelines, <laughs> you know, in quotes, guidelines in, in air quotes. And literally the guidelines are exactly the same kind of thing. You've got to do it this way. You can't do this. You can't have this kind of science fiction in this issue, you, you know. And as editor myself over the years, um, I have done that also. You know, I'll, I'll say to someone, oh, you know, I, I don't want any Regency or I don't want any of this or, you know, to get me to read that kind of fantasy, you know, the high high kind of fantasy, the George Martin kind of fantasy, I just won't read it hardly at all. Um, you know, so I warn the writers in a taboo kind of way. You know, if you want to really be here, probably you want to stay away from those things. And it never fails. I always buy a story that <laughs> someone makes me read because they do it in a way that's tipped upside down or they do it in a way that goes against my guidelines and I can't not buy it. Right. And that's what Hubbard was saying is you've got to be a good enough writer that you can take the guidelines, take the taboos, take whatever the editor doesn't want and prove to the editor they do want it. And that will, that's also what makes you the standout story in an issue because if you follow the guidelines exactly, your story often falls down in the cracks. It just becomes another, you know, just it's just the same. Yeah. And, and so the writers who really stand out in issues of magazines or in anthologies or stuff like that are the ones that do take the, well, I'm going to prove to you that I can write that. I mean, Chris often will say, I'll never buy a, a circus story. She just hates circus stories. And I think almost everything she's ever edited, there's been a circus story. And yeah. she hates them, and writers make her buy them because the writer does it so well and in such a unique way. And that's basically exactly what Hubbard was saying. Whatever the taboo of the time or the guideline of the time, push past it. Push beyond it. Take some chances. Take risks. And, and it turns out usually you get rewarded greatly for that risk. Yeah. He had this one story called Mad Dog Murder about oh, yeah. a Pekingese, yep. you know, who was the, the culprit at the end. It was just like just the opposite of what. Yep. You would think Mad Dog, yeah, Pekingese. Yeah. Yeah. So on your, on your own career now, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, you've written all over the, the, the spectrum. Yeah. You know, you've done... Uh, a lot of ghost writing. You've mm -hmm. written other people's universes. You've mm -hmm. got your own universe, uh, short fiction, long fiction, serialized. Um, is there anything that you've found for yourself that's been the most, what about it, of all those different things is, is the most enjoyable for you in doing them? Wow. Um, I, I pretty much follow Hubbard's advice completely is I only write what I want to write. I only write what I want to have fun with. So the answer to that is pretty much what I'm writing at the moment, which mm -hmm. sounds sort of stupid, but it's also, um, I think I have a pretty short attention span, <laughs> and and which is why my novels are often, you know, the old style novels, the 40, 50,000, 50, yeah. yeah. And, and because that's enough to tell a really good story, and it's enough to keep me interested, and then past that, you know, it's what I'm really 
my subconscious comes up and says, let's go write this. Let's go play in this universe. Let's go over here in my, and so I'll, I, right now I have seven or eight different series going, you know, and, and it's just whatever strikes me at any given moment. I go, well, let's go play in my Cedars universe and write, you know, big epic, you know, um, space opera. Oh, let's go write in my time travel universe, which is my Thunder Mountain historical in the wild west in mining towns and, and i said oh let's go write my mystery series which is my cold poker gang series and those are you know they're retired las vegas detectives solving cold cases and and so you know it just depends on what strikes me at the moment and i'll often be writing a short story because i'm writing a lot of short stories this year and um, I, i'll often be just writing a short story and i'm like oh there's a new series <laughs> and I will finish the short story, and that will be enough for my subconscious at that point. But at some point, it'll be going, you know that new series you started? Go take a look at that story. Let's see if we can go on with that. And it's just when my creative brain says, let's go play. And so I don't really have one that I hate or I love more than any of the others. It's just a matter of at any given moment. If someone was forcing me to write something in one of them, I probably would come to hate it quickly yeah. because that's not what I want to do at that moment. But right. I'm old enough now and rich enough now that I can write anything I want. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that's really fun, you know, so. Now you've done a lot of um, ghost writing, writing other mm -hmm. universes. How did that come about? That was back in the um, 19, early 1990s. And we had had a publishing company called Pulp House Publishing. My wife and I, Christine, Catherine Rush, and I had started this publishing company, and it grew way out of hand. And, and we had 16 employees, and, you know, and, and we were the fifth largest, fourth largest publisher of science fiction, fantasy, and horror in the nation. I was the publisher. Well, that was chewing up all my time. Um, and over my office door, I said, we're in this for the writing, was over the office door. But, of course, I wasn't hardly any, doing any writing at that point. So once I came out of that, I'd sold novels back in the 80s, but I literally, this was by 1992, where I said, okay, I'm going back. We kind of closed down most of the business and, and scaled it back to where it really should have been from the beginning. And um, I started writing. Well, the problem was, is at that point, I, I couldn't sell a book because I had these early novels and they, I didn't follow them up and I didn't grow them like I should have. So they had bad sales numbers, so I couldn't sell a book. But everybody knew I was a professional writer and I'd been doing this company. So um, I, Pocket Books hired me to start writing Star Trek books. And um, because basically um, I was a Star Trek fan. I mean, I'd go home from high school and, and early days of college when the first series was on. And yes, I am that old. And um, <laughs> you can't see that through the microphone. <laughs> He's really old. Um, and the... The uh, um, I would watch Treks. I was a hardcore Trek fan from the in the very first series, and suddenly getting the chance to write Star Trek. So Chris and I wrote the first one together under uh, name Sandy Schofield. I think we wrote a lot of books under Sandy Schofield, and then we wrote some more under um, Catherine Wesley, her middle name and my middle name. And then I started writing them. We started writing them under both of our names. And then I started writing them individually. And in the middle of this. Um, People knew I was a hardcore um, comic book fan. I used to have a comic book store. Um, and one of the editors from that was working with Marvel called me and said, would you write some Spider-Man novels? 
And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> of course I will. And then I wrote X-Men novel, and then I, then I did the X-Men novelization and for the first movie, and I did an Iron Man and some other stuff. And then um, I was sitting with a, an editor at a dinner at a convention, and she turned to me and she said, Dean, you write all this stuff. Could you write Men in Black? And I'm like, oh, of course I could. So I got to write original Men in Black novels between the first movie and the second movie, which was a lot of years. I was writing yeah. original Men in Black novels in there and um, and just having a blast. So all of those came around. And then what occurred was I was working for so many different companies doing these all these other projects and gaming projects and things like that, that one day when some big New York Times major best I was already a New York Times bestseller at that point, but um, one of the big number one writing thriller and an editor came to me and said, Dean, can you write his book for him? He's sick. We've already promoted it. We've already got it out for solicitation. We got to have, basically, they didn't have the interior of the book. They had everything else done. They didn't have the interior. <laughs> didn't have the book. They didn't have the book. And I said, sure, I can do that. And so I basically copied his voice, copied his style, and wrote his book for him. And it hit number one on the Times list under his name. And, uh, and everybody loved it. And he loved it. And that got my reputation out to all the other companies. There were a lot of companies at this point in time. And I got started getting hired to when one of their big guns, you know, and I would be hired by the publisher, not the writer. The publisher hired me. And the quicker they needed the book, the more I charged. Sure. You know, bottom line, if you're going to make me rush on this, I'm going to, you're going to pay. Yeah. And, uh, and I did numbers of those. They're all under, of course, I can't disclose. Although there were a couple of them that, that the author themselves broke the disclosure. Jonathan Frakes, there was a period when they were doing the movie star people were writing books and, you know, Shatner and, yeah. you know, Judy and Garfield Rees wrote all of Shatner's books and, and, uh, and a couple, and somebody else wrote one of the other books for Shatner. But, um, Jonathan Frakes, they wanted me to write a Jonathan Frakes book. And they needed it really fast because the first author that did it had written a really bad book. He was a good author. It just was the wrong book for Frakes. And so I said, sure, I'll do that. So I took the cover that they'd already solicited for, and I wrote the novel around the cover. And it was an 80,000-word novel. I wrote it in three days and <laughs> got it in, and it was the content. But Frakes, in the meantime, said, you know, I don't want to have – somebody had interviewed him, and, he's, and they were asking him how, how it was to write the book. We'd never met me. We had never talked, anything else. And so he got really concerned about having those kind of interviews because he couldn't lie. He's a really nice guy. And uh, he said, no, we got to put Dean's name on the inside. And they ended up putting it on the, on the inside, and they ended up redoing the cover and putting it on the outside too. Same art, but just with my name on it. So that broke the non-disclosure so I could say, yeah, yeah, I wrote that book. And there was one other. I was Random House came to me and wanted me to write a big thriller for a Christian writer who only wrote nonfiction. But for some reason, they decided that he needed to write a big thriller, you know, using his Christian benefits. And, and I went, well, sure, I can do that. You know, I can write this. And he, the author, wanted it to be set in t northern Thailand. I know nothing about Thailand. I went and found one book. It had one paragraph on Northern Thailand, and that was everything. I just made everything up from there. And he, they liked it. Random House really loved it. But he got the same question from an interviewer. How was it like to write this book in Northern Thailand? How was it, was it really fun to write and all that? And he realized he was in the same fix. He couldn't lie, um, especially as a, as a Christian person, I guess. Um, I don't know nothing about what he was teaching or anything else. I just kind of took one of his books. and He had quotes all through his book. 
So I put a quote at the top of every chapter. <laughs> That's all I did. <laughs> it was really simple. And it turned out to, you know, hit the times list, and but it had my name on it too um, because he just couldn't do that. So two of those broke. And a Star Trek book that I wrote for a big name also was broken by the author, the other author. I was asked to sign it one day in a convention, and someone brought this Eric Catani book up to me. And I'm like, I can't, I didn't write that. That's Eric Catani, even though I had, but I was signed contractually. And they said, well, your name's in it. And I'm like, what? And I pulled it out, and my name was in the inside under Eric Catani's as with Dean Wesley Smith. And I'm like, oh, that was the third edition. The first edition had come out with only his name, only his name, and he'd got the same kind of questions. And he said, third edition, you've got to put Dean's name in there. And someone came up, and it was like five years after I wrote that book before I realized that that contract was broken. So, but yeah, I, I wrote a lot of that kind of stuff. Wow. So now... Writers of the future. Writers of the future. So you're, this is volume one I'm holding in my hand. and um, You know what really bothers me about that book every time? It's no always idea. brown. It's aged. You can't find that book that's not aged. And it, you know, I look at that book and think, am I really that old that the paper has aged that much in a book that I was in? <laughs> but, I mean, you just I can't. wasn't going to go that direction. The direction <laughs> I was going to go. 38 years. Yeah. Was um, page 283, Dean Wesley Smith, a story called One Last Dance. Uh-huh. So One of my favorite stories, and I've never reprinted it. I need to get it out and reprint it. But I have to have somebody type it in because I wrote that on a manual typewriter. Yeah, that's we've got two issues on these earlier ones. Is one when these first released, there was no such thing as digital no, rights. There was nothing, yeah. And um, it was mass market, so any other stuff we don't have the rights for. And so while we could probably get, you know, the amount of work to go through and get oh. every one of these people to give new rights on it's just it's most not of them happen. most of us hasn't haven't i mean a lot of those writers are gone yeah and and most of us have not typed in that story. I would give it to somebody and say, "Type this in word for word, and you know and, but that's the only way it's ever going to see print again is to get it into an electronic format, yeah, but I love that story. Jack Williamson is the reason that story's in that book, really yes, um you know a j Algis Budras, the uh uh, coordinating judge on that, he liked it enough, but he, it wasn't one of his favorites. Yeah. And but Jack Williamson, who was had just lost his wife and had, you know, he was an, an older gentleman. I think he was in his seventies or something, and that book came out. Um, and he just identified with the characters because it's about two old people dancing in a nursing home, and uh, science fiction. It's, yeah. a, it's a fantasy science fiction story, but um, um, Jack just absolutely went to bat for it. And he uh, said it needs to be, even though it wasn't a winner, it was a it was a finalist. And Jack Williamson is the reason my story's in there. Wow, That's, I didn't know. I did not know that. I didn't know that until I'm sitting in Jack Williamson's kitchen about 15 years later in Portales, New Mexico. Chris and I were guests of honor at one of his uh, big seminars that he had down there, science seminars. And uh, and he was like, and he says, "Yeah, I really had to fight AJ to get that story in." And I'm kind of looking at him. We're, we're in Jack Williamson's kitchen. I'm already, I'm gosh wowed, yeah. you know, and uh, you know, only about 20 feet from his writing office, which was like Mecca as far as I was concerned. I mean, he sold his first short story in 1928. And, uh, and so one of the great pulp writers of all time, mm-hmm. you know, right there with, with Hubbard. And, uh, and so I'm sitting there and he said, yeah. And, and I said, what do you mean you had to fight AJ for that? 
And he goes, oh yeah, he said, he said I, I, sw I actually threatened AJ that I wouldn't be a judge anymore if he didn't put that story in. And I'm like, okay, thank you, Jack. Because <laughs> that really helped my career massively to have that story in there. And he really fought for it. And he told me that at the banquet that night too. He actually, you know, yeah. talked to me about the story and said how much he loved it. And to have Jack, I mean, I've been reading yeah. him literally my entire life and suddenly to have him come up and talk about one of my stories, that's, that's life-changing. That's yeah. life-changing. And that's something that the contest does with a lot of oh. these winners I've been um, talking to and interviewing, just how much they appreciate you and the other judges who are here mm -hmm. to help just answer the questions. I, I can't pay Jack back. You know, and I can't pay Harlan Ellison, one of my other mentors, and I can't pay, which was a, he was a judge in that book too. And I can't, I can't pay, you know, some Fred Pohl and Gene Wolfe who taught at the first conference and, you know, and in with Dallas, AJ yeah. and Jack, I, I can't pay them back. They're all gone. And so, you know, that just is like, well, the only thing I can do is exactly what they did, pay the future writers. Yeah. And that's what so much of this is about is that's why Hubbard set that up is to to help the future writers. And that's why we're all judges, is try to help the future writers. Yeah. I'm just curious, since you've been around since the get-go, mm -hmm. um, when I spoke with Robert Silverberg, he said, this is, this is a great concept if it's around for a couple of years, two, yeah. five years. Ten years would be awesome, you know? And every, for a while, like every five years or ten years on the 25th anniversary, then again on the 30th, say another essay, and he'd just like, you know, I thought if, if this went around for five or 10 years, that would be awesome. Yeah. But what's your, your take on it? What, what's the, what do you see as the, as the best ingredient or couple of ingredients that makes it so that it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger? Uh, well, I think the, the, the basic idea that Hubbard came up with and, and funding it up to start with um, and, and keeping it really isolated with the writers, you know, and with the focus on the writers and the focus on the writing and the focus on the stories, I think that is a foundation that's just hard to crack. Um, and then, to be honest with you, not meaning, you know, it's you folks. It's, it's you guys that keep this running. Mm -hmm. and keep that whole vision in mind and keep it focused on the vision. You haven't let it drift off that vision um, of that initial vision at all. And that's what makes this continually so good. Why so many writers are just like not missing quarters to submit stories. So many, you know, I mean, that group I talked in front of this afternoon, the, the writer winners, wow. I mean, those, those are some sharp people. And that makes me feel really good for the future of fiction, the future of science fiction and fantasy. Um, you know, they're, they're sharp, they're business, they're, they're, they're hungry. Mm -hmm. All of them had that light in their eyes of, I want to learn. And, and I was kind of messing with the brains too, you know, some of the stuff <laughs> that I do because I'm kind of blunt. But, uh, you know, that, that, that's kind of, uh, I, think, I think it's a combination. I think it's the, the solid foundation and then all of you guys fighting through all the problems that come up year after year and keeping it focused on the writers. I, I, you know, I, I don't think a lot of us judges would be around if you didn't do that because we're here because of the young writers. And, and that's, 
And you guys' focus are, are laser on that. Mm-hmm. You try to help the wrong writers. You don't tell them to do it a certain way. You just say, here's the information. So I'll be talking about something. Kevin Anderson will have a different opinion. McCaffrey will have a different opinion. Then I'm sure Benford tomorrow is going to have a different opinion. He's the guy that I shook his hand as I walked across the stage on the first one. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be, I haven't seen him for two or three years. He and I became, you know, friends over the years. But he's in that very first picture of me walking across the first stage. There's Greg. I'm shaking his hand. So it'll be fun to shake his hand again tomorrow after all these years. All these years. Yeah. And so, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, I think it's a combination of two. I think it's the laser focus from you guys and the incredibly solid foundation of, of the focus itself. And, yeah. you know, and so, so I just think it's, and the focus on learning, that's the third thing you're you're giving these people learning i was at the very first workshop too mm-hmm. it took 2 years after the first contest before aj managed to put together the first workshop because they were really focused on the learning there and that first learning first workshop was algis budras jack williamson fred pole and gene wolf you know the people who understand science fiction go you were and it was for an entire week sitting at the at the feet of these giants and there was only 12 of us and and that was that was awe-inspiring and changing, just like I'm seeing these kids here now being changed by this, by yeah. what you guys are doing here. That's, that's, um, that's the thing that really, I think, at least for me, gives me that you know, satisfaction, what we're doing, all the work we go through, all the, <laughs> all, the, all the things to be able to pull it off. I watch you guys work so hard on this thing. Every year, I'm, you know, I'll be sitting there and watching you guys running in different directions and to put out this fire and to solve this and to make sure this happens. And it's just, it's amazing to watch. Because I yeah, put on right contests my form. 35 at night. I, yeah. I get this last podcast in because I got a video crew coming in. So what I had is podcast for tomorrow night needs to turn to videos so oh. I can do, you know, that. Yeah, and it's just... It's mind-numbing to watch you guys. Again, that's why we're here. You know, and we can't do much to help us old pros, but we're here to, you know, maybe offer a little moral support. And, well, and at the same time... and teach these guys is just... Yeah. It, there's, we cannot do that at all. We, you know, that's why you're here. Why, that's why we so respect what you're doing and the fact that some of you guys have insane careers and schedules to keep it, but to take that week out and mm-hmm. to come here and do this stuff is just, oh, it's uh, not a paid gig for you. you know, and, oh, no, no, we don't, you, you don't pay us anything for this. This no, is I mean, us. We'll fly us. you in, we'll give you the hotel or yeah. you know, drive in and. Yeah, I, and this is, and this is us trying to help the new writers. Exactly. We know you have a group of incredibly selected, self-selected by their own writing. Mm-hmm. That's how you guys judge. And having Jody as the new judge is just fantastic. That was, an, that was a tremendous selection. Um, you know, when, when I heard that, I just went, oh, that's absolutely perfect. Of course. It wouldn't have crossed my mind, you know, of all the people to replace Dave, it wouldn't have crossed my mind to have Jody. But the minute you, you announced her name, I'm like, well, of course, that's the absolute best. And, uh, and so that was because she's going to be able to really help. And she's got her feet in both the old school of publishing and the new traditional. And so she was able to help balance that with Tim Powers, mm-hmm. you know, teaching. And, and then people like me coming in and Kevin and Rebecca and, and uh, you know, Todd McCaffrey, all of us who are working in the new world of publishing now. I used to work in the old world. Now I work in the new. And, uh, and being able to, and you give us enough time to mm-hmm. actually 
explain the stuff that we're doing. You, uh, you gave me uh, two and a half hours today out of the out of those kids' schedule, and I filled it real That's solid. I mean, <laughs> you know, know, you're one of the ones that when you used to come in and get an hour, I went, I got to get them more. I got to get them more. So Thank then you. I took charge of the writing workshop this year and worked out the schedule and, and what it would be. Yeah. And uh, I don't necessarily want to do it again because it's... <laughs> Well, this year uh, I was really fascinating because a lot of the instructors were sitting there listening to me because I'm Chris and I are the farthest along in the indie world and the indie publishing and making a living and doing all the different stuff that goes on in that world. And so, you know, Tim was sitting there the whole two and a half hours. You know, Jody was sitting there the whole two and a half hours. Nina Creaky Hoffman was sitting there the whole, she came up to me afterward and she said, I really want to do all this stuff, but I don't know how I'd ever do it. You know, cause she, because she's had health issues and other mm -hmm. stuff. And she was in the first volume with me too. Yeah. And she's one of the judges here now too. And so, yeah. No, it was, it was important to give you, I, you had to have, had We're to have enough room to give the whole story yeah. and the perspective. Yeah. yeah. So thank you for that. Yeah, you're welcome. Man. That was, I knew that you'd be able to fill it yeah. easily. Oh, yeah. So now on, um, you came in writing science fiction and fantasy. And mm -hmm. I mean, you've also, your history, I don't know how many people know about your history. So I think that's fascinating too, from the mm -hmm. pro circuit, golf circuit to, mm -hmm. to writing. Did it go writing, golf, writing, or where, where did writing enter the scene? Um, it basically, the, the the story is I was a golf pro in Palm Springs, California. I was a head pro down there at a very young age. Mm -hmm. um, I had gotten lucky and good, I guess. And some of the sponsors thought I was a good enough player. Some of the my members on my course thought I was a good enough player. And they thought I should head out on the tour. Well, at this point, there was no qualifying schools or anything else. This was a in the ancient days of the PGA system. And, uh, and by and large, I was called a trunk slammer, is I would go to the qualifying event ahead of the tournament on Monday. I mean, on, on Sunday, usually. And then I would play in the qualifying. And if you didn't win or get second or third place in the qualifying event of all these pros playing that trying to qualify, then you took your clubs out to the parking lot, threw them in the trunk of your car, slammed the lid, and headed for the next tournament. And the rest, the three or two or three that made it got to play in the tournament that started on Thursday. And then if you made the cut in the tournament, you actually made some money. So it was a pretty brutal kind of thing. That's why, you know, my, my the rich people in my golf club in Palm Springs um, were sponsoring me. They'd sponsor me for four or five weeks at a time, and then I'd come back. Um, I only made one tournament out of 12 tries, and I did not make the cut in that tournament. But I got to play in one, one tour event. And, um, and that was really fun. I mean, I was a PGA pro, I was doing that, but it dawned on me at that point that that probably wasn't the life for me. I, I could have kept really working at it and working at it to get that last little over the top so I was good enough to, you know, start it's making some money. Yeah. But my heart wasn't in it. Um, and it was all because of a book. This book sabotaged me beyond words. <laughs> I was this head pro, I was partying a lot. Um, I was young. Um, I was out on the tour, you know, every f four weeks, and then they'd fund me for another four, and I'd have my assistant pro at the course take over the course for four weeks, and I'd be out, you know, out again traveling and, um, you know, staying in hotel rooms and just and, and drinking too much probably. And one of the aspects is I found a book that someone, one of my members said they had just read and really loved it about a mining town that went underwater in Idaho in 1908, 1909. 
And I went, no mining town went underwater in Idaho. I'm born and raised in Idaho. I've been in those mountains a lot because my grandparents were pioneers and they would show me the old mining towns. They never mentioned a town going underwater. But this was a Zane Gray book called Thunder Mountain. And I checked it out of the tiny little Palm Springs library at that point and read it and just went, this isn't possible. So on the next tour out, when I was out playing, I slammed the trunk in one event and went, I'm going to cut through Boise, go out of my way, and check at the Historical Society. Well, they didn't have any record of it. And it took three days there, and I ended up missing the next tournament, missing qualifying, uh, because I spent it in Boise looking in the Historical Society. We finally found record of it. And it was a town called Roosevelt, and it had gone underwater because a mudslide come down right below it, and the spring melt had completely flooded this 10,000-person town, and it vanished. And so I literally was tired of being a golf pro. I needed to get back to college. I went back to college and have a master's in architecture. And then I went to three years of law school. And I'm not a lawyer, but I went to three years of law school. Yeah. And, uh, and that book just haunted me. And so the first year I was back up in college and went back to the University of Idaho. Um, and I became an assistant pro at the course on the University of Idaho campus. I was their assistant pro. I'd gone from head pro in Palm Springs, touring player to an assistant pro at the University of Idaho, and, uh, and just to make some summer money and do this. But we hiked in there. We went into the wilderness area in Idaho, a friend of mine and I, and we hiked down, and I stood on the edge of that lake, and you can see the buildings down through the water. And I, it, was just, it was just like, wow, what are we, I'm like, this is real. And from that point on, I started writing. And I was 25 years old when I started writing, or 24. And I sold, I started writing some poems. I sold a bunch of poems, sold, sold my first two short stories in 1974, and then made a whole bunch of mistakes, which I try to warn people off of when I teach and other stuff, that cost me seven years. I was trying to write, but I didn't do anything for seven years. And it wasn't until 1982 that I found Heinlein's rules and how real pros do it instead of English teachers. And I followed the real pros, and I started talking to them more and going out to conventions and talking to them and like, oh, this is how they really do it. So okay. what were some of these things that were the... I was rewriting everything. Awful. That's the worst thing you can do as a writer is rewrite it. It just makes it dull and boring. It makes it same. It's like polishing a rock. Polished rocks all look the same. They're all got different colors, but they all still look the same. What really makes a rock unique is when it has the edges and the sharp points and my personality still in it. And so the moment I stopped rewriting and just wrote one draft, didn't write sloppy, wrote clean, and mailed it just like Hubbard did in his day, yeah. um, you know, which is, you know, people you can learn from. You got to go to the, the pros um, just like Bradbury did, just like, you know, Lawrence Block and all the other people I admired. Har Harlan would sit in a bookstore window and write one draft on a manual typewriter and put the pages in a window, you know, and, like, and those stories would win awards and he would never touch them, never rewrite them. So the rewriting myth is a nasty myth, and that cost me six and a half to seven years. I was just making all my stories dull and boring. And the, and the first two I'd written and sold were first drafts. But that never dawned on me that mm -hmm. maybe it's because they were first drafts that they sold. And, uh, and so I finally stopped doing that. I finally stopped. I started writing faster. Writing slow is deadly. I started writing faster. I started doing some other stuff, and I mailed everything. I just wrote it and mailed it, wrote it and mailed it. And that's how I, that story in Writers of the Future, 
That's exactly what happened. My uh, second wife and I were getting back together. We were still really good friends to this day. But uh, she and I were going to try it one more time, and we were going to move to the coast and try it one more time and like that. And so she was at my, I had an apartment in Portland, Oregon. She was coming over from Idaho where we had lived at the University of Idaho and where we'd gotten married. And she said, what do you, what do, you do? And I said, oh, damn, I forgot the, the deadline. It's tonight. It has to be mailed by tonight. She said, what deadline? I said, you know, the one that AJ wanted, that he's doing this new contest. And she said, well, write it. And I said, well, I haven't started. My pack, typewriter's packed. And she said, unpack it, put it on a box, and sit down and write the story. And I'm like, okay. And so I sat on the edge of the bed with my typewriter, manual typewriter, actually electric typewriter at that point, on a box. And I wrote that story. And put it in an envelope, and as we were headed for the coast to move me to the coast and her and me to the coast, I mailed it before midnight. And that's how that story came about. Wow. It's, you know, it's, it's lasted the longest. It's still in print, and it's still doing great for me. And it was uh, one draft on a manual, t on an electric typewriter, sitting on, with a typewriter on a box while I was in the middle of moving. That's what you have to do. You have to make priorities. Yeah. That, that's really good. So then, so you... Handled the uh, the misadvice of rewrite that you got from comes from English teachers and stuff. Yeah, yeah, in themselves and never published. And then, um, then you say you started listening to Highland and his five rules. Mm -hmm. And um, any other things that helped set you on the on the path to success from from what you can see. Um, doing exactly what the young writers are doing here, getting out and talking to the pros. Um, meeting Chris at the First Writers of the Future workshop. Mm -hmm. That's where I met Christine Catherine Rush, who's my wife. We've been together for 36 years now. It was two years after the first book, and that was 36 years ago in, I think, April, May, well, somewhere. You met there. in Taos, right? We met in Taos. Well, and actually, we actually met in Albuquerque because AJ somehow tracked me down at my father's house in Arizona, this way before cell phones and anything. Yeah. He tracked me down and said, there's these two writers that have flown into Albuquerque. They don't have a ride up to Taos. Can you pick them up? So AJ told me to pick up my wife, <laughs> and we never were apart since. We've been together ever since, ever since that workshop. Yeah, she's yeah. an amazing person. Oh, I'm yeah. Preaching to the choir there. Yeah, she's a heck of a writer, I'll tell you. <laughs> Two yeah. writers survived all these years together, and all by itself should be a world record. Yeah. Yeah. So now, for the aspiring writer itself, um, mm. I mean, you've, you've given a lot of advice, and you have a, a basic structure that you go over like when you did you when you talk to the winners today mm -hmm. you know it's a new world mm -hmm. so um we've already established uh, from the one essay that you that we started off this with on the booze and taboos mm -hmm. and a little bit of your history and then the bad advice that like stumbled for seven and a half years now we've got a new world so mm -hmm. a little bit about that please we're we're about uh Three-fifths done right now with, with, okay. this, with this interview. The new world is the indie world, the indie publishing world. That's where the writer is in control of everything about the book. And that has this new world has allowed it because the Kindle broke that revolution in 2008. And now there's lots of companies that are helping. Yeah. And, um, and you know, all the way from um, book funnels to, you know, everything else. It just helps us a lot. Um, Chris and I started a new company after we realized what was going on. 
because New York traditional publishing thought indie uh, thought um, electronic publishing was stupid, but they were worried about it since about 1990. So the sky was always falling. It was always going to change them. And I'm, when I was working in different things in traditional publishing, I cannot tell you how many meetings I sat through where they were all worried about the near, newest electronic thing. And I mean, I, my, I have one of my books was number one on Rocket Reader in the year 2000. And, you know, I pushed John Grisham off the top of the list, which meant I was the best hockey player in Ecuador, basically. <laughs> it meant nothing. And, uh, and, you know, it, and it wasn't until the Kindle. And when the Kindle finally hit, traditional publishing was already tired of the skies falling. So they paid no attention. So what occurred was Kindle needed to fill all those things that they were selling at Christmas. They needed content. And that's when the writer said, hey, I can make my own cover. Hey, I can publish it myself. I can do all of this. And then that whole indie world started building. So now writers are their own business. They do their own covers. They do everything. We are in control. And in the old days, that was not the way. Everybody else did it. And we had, if you got a bad cover, you had no say in it. If somebody really messed up your book, I had one book that the chapters were scattered out of order through the whole book. And, and, and there's nothing, they didn't even bother to reprint it. And, you know, because it was just, was, a, what, was it was a pocketbook and it was a gaming book. It was called Unearth. And not only was my chapter scattered, but uh, writer Ryan Hughes, I think, which was a pen name for another major writer, um, they took some of his chapters and put them in my book, took some of my chapters and put them in his book, because there was a person in, in, down in production that was really angry. And they'd just been fired, but they hadn't been kicked out of the building. And so they went in and just scattered all these things and nobody caught it. And that book came out and I'm reading it. I'm looking at it going, heck, I didn't write half of this. And what order is that? That's the third to the last chapter right there at the opening. It just was awful. And they didn't bother to reprint it. That's, that's how you were out of control with traditional publishing and still are. Yeah. Um, and for us indies who like control and like to be in charge, that's what it is. The new world is you're in charge. The other new side of the new world is you can make an enormous amount more money. Just enormous. Because traditional publishing pays a royalty of anywhere from 8% to 15 or 16%. So you've got a $5 book and you're making 8% on it, you're going to make 40 cents. Well, you sell that exact same book on a $5 electronic book through Amazon or through Kobo or something like that, you make $4 or $3.50. And $3.50 for one sale versus 40 cents, we make a lot more money. Yeah. And those, those who know what they're doing, and it takes a little while, it takes a little build up. There's a, there's a path, just like there was a path to get into traditional publishing. Um, you know, it's not one book. It's more like 20 or 30 books. Well, there's that Michael Anderley with... Yeah, 20, 20 to 50. Yeah. That's, that's exactly right. You, if you publish 20 books and it sells very few copies each book, but it builds up. They all build up, and you ha and the real thing that I was trying to teach the writers today more than anything else is that books don't spoil. They're not bananas. Where New York treats books like bananas, traditional publishing, they put it out, it's a launch, and then three weeks later, it's like the banana has gone black, and they pull it off the shelf, and it's done, and they replace it with fresh bananas. And that's <laughs> what they do, and that's what how they treat books in their minds. They, yeah. elect, you know, traditional publishing thinks books spoil. Well, those of us in indie publishing know books don't spoil. We, we, we actually will often make more money on the fourth or fifth year of the same book than we did on the first. 
I've had a number of series explode um, after I'm like nine or 10 books in and they've been selling one or two copies of book, you know, and we, we don't promote them or do anything. And then one day something happens and it just explodes up. I, I had my cold poker gang mystery series mm-hmm. was at the top of Amazon for quite a while. And I have nine books in that series at that point. I think I got 10 now, but I had nine at that point. And um, made unbelievable amounts of money. The sales of just that one week on just Amazon alone that I could see, those sales on just those, the second book, the third book, and the fourth book in the series would have made me on the Times. I'd have been on, all three of those books would have been on the Times list. If, you know, traditional publishing actually counted that stuff. Right. And uh, so it's a brand new world. And it's a fantastic world for writers. Right now, pretty much any new writer coming in is looking at indie. Very few are still stuck in the 1990s myth of going to traditional publishing. Traditional publishing is dying quickly, very quickly. Um, It has no way it can make any money. Um, There's just the sales of where there used to be giant peaks, the big... showing a peak here with my hands. That really works on a podcast. <laughs> but basically, it used to be giant peaks where the Pattersons and the Kings would make these enormous amounts of money, enormous amounts of sales. Now those are rounded foothills. You know, they, they just don't, even the big names are not getting like the same amount of money or the same amount of sales. The whole thing has shifted way down. The uh, bestsellers are making one-tenth to one-twentieth now of what they made in traditional, literally yeah. 10 years ago. It's so now with, with, yeah, with... Um you're talking about indie indie. Mm-hmm. Now, is some of that would also be constituted as self-publishing versus indie? Because I, when I think of indie, I think of your publishing house. I'm I'm thinking of Eric Flint's with his um, publishing house, Galaxy Kevin's Press. Galaxy, Galaxy Press. Press is an indie press in the world, in all senses of the word. Yeah. You choose different distribution systems sometimes mm-hmm. um, than we do at w- WMG. Is Chris and I's publishing house? We have right. three employees and a whole bunch of part-time employees and, and contract labor, but we have three full-timers. And um, um, we choose different kinds of distribution systems, um, and you choose different kinds of distribution systems. We're, we're all after the same thing. We're all going to readers. Yeah. Traditional publishing never goes to a reader. They go into the trade channel. And no, the trade yeah. channel is down the, go to a distributor, go to a warehouse, go to this. Then eventually it gets to a bookstore, and then the bookstore owner worries about the reader. But we authors now in indie, we are we worry about the reader. We are direct to reader versus direct to trade. Exactly. And and see and the the you guys do both. Mm-hmm. You know you're direct to trade and direct to reader. So you've got a hybrid going on, which is really cool, and uh, and I think will serve you well, given some yeah, time here. Absolutely. Um, and I and I think that the best way to look at that is there is no self publishing anymore, because every writer who chooses to go to be a self-publisher becomes a business and that's an indie press. It's a small press. Um, you know, and even if they say, well, I'm publishing my own work. Well, they still have to have a business. They still have to have a publishing name. They still have to, and they basically start their own business and they start an indie press. So that's why the term indie independent press has picked up. And so a brand new writer with their first book can come do the cover, do whatever and publish it. And um, and they still have to have a business name on it somehow, and so therefore they're an independent publisher. Got it. And that's where indie comes. And so the self publisher. I've been been looking at you've got traditional, you got indie, and self. So I've been the self has pretty well died off because back from from up until 1950, 
indie publishing was a major way of doing it. In fact, we wouldn't be reading um, Edgar Rice Burroughs if it wasn't for indie press because his son started a press. Burroughs couldn't sell another book. And his son said, I'm going to publish all your work, Dad. And they started, and they're still in existence. You go to the licensing expo in Las Vegas in May, and there's a Burroughs booth there for Burroughs Publishing. Right. Um, and, you know, they've been indie. But then in 1950, Writer's Digest, bless their heart, um, put an ad on the back of the magazine. And it's of an old courthouse in, I don't know why they picked the courthouse in Colville, Washington, but they did. And it's, it was on their ad, and it was for Vanity Press. And people would pay them money to publish their book. And what would happen is these four people would pay a lot of money. They'd get these really bad books back and put them in their garage, and they'd maybe sell four copies. And they would have until they molded out, and then they'd have to put them in a dumpster. That was Vanity Press. So from 1950 until 2008 with the Kindle, that was really looked down on. Sure. And it should have been. They were awful. I never saw a good Vanity Press published book, ever. just didn't happen. Right. So all of us learned over that 58 years that Vanity Press was bad. You know, self-publishing was bad. You had to go to the New York publishers, otherwise sure. you were not approved mm -hmm. with their fairy dust. And so basically, that's how, and so now self-publishing still brings back that, that feeling of vanity. And it's just not. It's not at all. It's completely the authors in control. They can do a bad book. They can do a good book. You can't now, most of the independent Publishers, you can't tell the difference from one of our books versus a traditionally published book. You just can't tell the difference. I've, because we use top artists. We yeah. know how to do blurbs. We do everything else. So, okay, I'm tracking with that now. Mm -hmm. Now, I've also got uh, a definite consideration or an idea mm -hmm. that some type of a, of a traffic cop that says, this is good. This is this is trash. Gatekeepers. Yeah, gatekeepers. Mm -hmm. um, what's your What's your opinion about that? In the oh, we have them. For we it? have them in the indie. You know what they are? Readers. If you If you write a bad book, no reader buys it except your family. Right. You know, and then they don't bother read it. They just put it on the shelf and say, "Hey, look, my nephew did this or something like that." No, readers are your readers are your goal, um, and it takes a while to build up. But if, again, books don't spoil, so it's sitting there on the shelf and it can be in print for a long time. And if readers start to discover it, you've written a good book. And if it starts to sell and you fix maybe your bad cover or your bad blurb or something, um, and then it, then it sells. And so readers are the gatekeepers. They're their own gatekeepers. We as indie writers have to t trust readers. Mm -hmm. New York never paid any attention to any reader and still doesn't. They don't, you know, if, if that editor who just got out of Vassar two years earlier and is, and, and has really strong opinions, that's their gatekeeper. And it's like, okay, why would I trust that person? They don't know anything. They haven't even lived long enough to know anything. I've got books that are older than them. That book's older than most of the editors in New York. And, you know, and so th that's just a, a false thing, that gatekeeper, because what you're, a gatekeeper is, is one opinion. Well, does that editor at Tor or at Bantam or something like that, do they speak for my tastes? No. I want to have my own tastes. And I'll buy a book if I want, or I'll see it on a Kickstarter and go, oh, that's a cool-looking book. And I'll back the Kickstarter so I can get that book early. Mm -hmm. You know, things like that. It's just the readers have tastes. We're all readers. We got to trust. We as writers have to trust the readers. Those are the gatekeepers. 
That's a very good answer to that. Thank you. Yes. So now on on um, the steps that a person should go to, because you've done a lot to build your name, to build your mailing list, to build your social presence. What yeah. have you found to be the most... Like I remember one time uh, speaking with Neil Gaiman, this is several years ago, when he first mm -hmm. came to America, mm -hmm. and he was making it big. And I asked him, so what's been the biggest thing for you that, that made your entrance into America? And he said, it was my daily journal. It wasn't anything that the publishers did. It wasn't anything mm -hmm. from any of the marketing or advertising. It was like my daily journal. I came and I built up fan followers and... They were watching it as it was happening. They were following along. And that's for him, he said, what made the difference for his big breakout in America. Because at that point, he was a British author. Mm -hmm. So what's your opinion on like what an aspiring writer or even an established writer who's trying to now get some livelihood out of it? Do stuff that fits you, that fits who you are as a person, as a writer. Um, don't try to imitate somebody else. Um, I because I had not been writing for about a year because I was taking care of an estate of a friend. Um, I came back in um, in August first of ten years ago from right now uh, to writing full time, be really going at it because again I'd lost a year on this estate, and um, and I started a blog. And every night I blog. Sometimes it's about something I'm promoting. Sometimes it's about a, some writing thing, you know, or I'll get something or I'll talk about marble collecting or I'll talk about whatever. But I haven't missed a day for 10 years, almost 10 years, two months short of 10 years right now. And I'll be back in my room here a little bit and do a blog for tonight, you know, and it's, I, for somehow, for almost 10 years with power outages and computer failures and everything else, I have managed to put a blog up every night for 10 years. And so I have a lot of followers. Usually they read it twice a week, you know, but it's thousands and thousands of followers. And, and so if I say, yo, hey, take a look at this. I mean, last night I told him to go to Kevin's Kickstarter that's ending, you know, to get the, uh, the raw file. And, uh, and a whole bunch of people went streaming over there who wanted to dictate their books, you know, to get how Kevin Anderson dictates his book. They get the raw file in this Kickstarter. And so basically it's due what's, what's right for you. Um, we do a lot of Kickstarters. I think we've done almost 20 of them now. Um, we make an enormous amount of money on them, um, which is great fun, but it also sell, gets a lot of our books out, gets our fans to have our books early, and we do a lot of our writing workshops in the Kickstarters too. Because over the about 17 years ago, I started online because Chris and a couple other writers badgered me to do an online workshop, uh, on writing workshop. And I went, okay, I'll try it for a little while, you know, like six months, and then I'll quit, and that'll be it. Well, now all these years later, WMG has over 220 different writing workshops. Wow. In our thing, basically WMGworkshops.com. We're a brand new website. We're just building it, but it's got some stuff there, and it has links to everything's on Teachable. And, and so, you know, that's helped a lot. But I, my blog has gone to being a writer blog. Chris does a business blog every Thursday that is at a high level of business for writers, you know, really high level. And then, and so she has an enormous amount of followers on that. And 
and, and often will go viral with that blog because she's like me. She's very blunt. And Chris, Christine Catherine Rush, my wife. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and basically, past that, we just find every way we can to get our books out to readers. We do uh, book bubs regularly. And, you know, to do promotion that way, we do the Kickstarters, we do, you know, ads on Amazon, we do all kinds of stuff. We don't spend a lot of money. In fact, WMG has a $400 a month advertising budget. That's all I allow them. And they will come to me every so often and say, we got this Kickstarter, but that's going to cost us 380 Can we have an extra 380 for the, I mean, for the book bub? And I'm like, yeah, for the book bub, you can have the extra 380 you know, and, uh, and, but I'm the CFO, so I control the purse strings. Right. And, uh, and so they have to come to me if they want over and above, but they find amazing ways for that 400 bucks to promote over a thousand titles that we have. They, they're really selective. They, they work on campaigns and different things that they do. Um, basically my suggestion is do, you know, for Neil, that was right for him. It fit him, it fit his personality, and it turned out to be the right thing. Yeah. I would suggest for writers to just do what fits them, and, and, but focus on the writing, especially early on. The 20 to 50 is exactly right. Get, you know, focus on the writing and focus on learning. Focus on learning craft and learning business, you know, from books and from workshops and like that. Don't miss Writers of the Future submission, of course, every quarter. But, right. you know, because if you win this and get in, Oh my God, this week is so valuable to be able to listen to Tim Powers and, and Joe, Jody Lynn and I battling it out up there in that week. And then listen, have me come in and have Kevin Anderson come in and have Greg Benford come in and Niven, Larry Niven this afternoon. You know, I mean, that's just, how do you, you can't buy that. Right. Yeah. There's, you know, writers would be out there trying to buy that. And of course you wouldn't get all of us pros if you guys were making a lot of money on it. Yeah. You know, we know you're all losing money, so we're coming to help. <laughs> So that just do do what's right for you. Do what fits you. Don't try to f- copy other people. Okay, that's good advice. And then, do you recommend that it's good to have though your own following? To at oh, what sure. point is that important? Oh, sure, absolutely important. You 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 probably sh- should be on social media with the underline of the word social. Um, don't just go there to sell a book. You know, just you know. Be friendly, you know, talk about your cats, talk about whatever. It's social. Um, and whatever suits you, like like I'm on Twitter, but I never go there. And Chris said, oh, you got 4,000 people following you on Twitter. And I'm like, why? I do. And she says, well, every so often I'll forward one of your things from Facebook to Twitter. And I'm like, well, thank you. I have no idea. Uh, you know, I don't have that big a Facebook following. I think I got 4,000 or something on Facebook. But, um, you know, I don't post much on Facebook either. So I'll, I'll spend five minutes a day on social media because it's just not who I am. For you, it's, it's the blog. The blog. My website, deanwesleysmith.com. You know, and it's just, that's what I do. And the workshops. And so I'm always, I'm always communicating with young writers continuously right. because I have all these workshops and I make it totally free to ask me any question. So if you've got a question about something and you're taking one of the workshops, just write me and I go, yeah, here, here's where you find it. Here's how it's done. Here's my suggestion. Here's my opinion, you know, that sort of stuff. And uh, I don't tell them how to do it because every writer's different. Right. But I, I do teach basics a lot. And then we teach advanced business in this thing. And it's this giant teaching thing. It turned out to be like a university. We didn't intend that. We yeah. still don't intend that. <laughs> but every so often, Chris and I'll go, oh, I know what let's do. Let's, let's teach power words. And, and I turned to Chris and went, 
you know that there isn't a young writer on the planet that knows what a power word is. And I said, that's a stage four experienced writer level. I mean, they use them once in a while, but they don't know they use them. And, and she goes, well, let's do a six-week workshop on it. I'm like, okay. You know, I said, nobody's going to sign up. It turns out a lot of writers did sign up for it because they didn't know what it was. And if Chris and I are saying, yeah, power words, we're going to teach you for six weeks how to use power words, you know, it's just like, oh, wow, okay. You know, and, it, and lots of people said, wow, it really activated my writing. And I'm like, yeah, well, that's what power words do. It also holds readers away if you do them the right way. If you need to have a character be close, then you can use certain types of power words to pull a character in close to the reader. Or you can use certain types of power words to hold a character off. If you want them, you know, like a villain, you want them to be held off. Well, it's all done in power words. And, but beginning writers, that's way beyond them. Uh, but, yeah. you know, that's the kind of workshops we teach every so often. We just go, okay, let's teach pacing. <laughs> that's a stage four. Most yeah. people don't even know how to hit the return key early in their career. You yeah. know, I noticed that in some of the stories. I'm, uh, I'm going to be working with them, some of them to help their pacing because they won't even see it. Right. You know, and so I don't want to hold readers away from the story. So, you know, as an editor, I'll be trying to help, you know, with their pacing after they're judged, yeah. you know. Not, not before they're judged. Don't give anybody a break on that. Well, I won't even know who they are until after they're judged. Yeah. Yeah. And one last thing, which I've not talked about, but we're at the very end here, is, um, and this will be a subject of another podcast we'll do later on, okay. is Dean has now come on board as the new editor for Writers of the Future series. Um, Jody came on, and she's the new coordinating judge, and Dean is the new editor. And so he'll be working on putting the book together for volume 39, which we are so excited to uh, have you on board. So very well, thank much you. welcome. Thank you. It's going to be great fun. Yeah. I, and I, I'm so honored to be in the, the three ahead of me. Those, those three were amazing humans that were yes. the editors ahead. Yes. And, you know, and, and working with Jody. It's the first time in the two tasks have been separated. And so, you know, yeah. we've got to. will definitely be good on that. Yeah. So I said that'll be a subject of the podcast because it's going to be uh, – People are gonna have questions and oh, yeah. all kinds of stuff. So and they won't see they won't see it until a year from now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so okay, so I wanted to, this one. I wanted to really cover the subject of the booze and taboos article. Great article. And um, it's in the new volume. Yeah, it's coming in the new volume coming out. It's gonna and I would highly recommend writers out there read that. Read it. Get through the language. You know, just realize, oh, this is 1930s language. It's okay, and see what Hubbard was saying. It it's absolutely spot on advice. Spot on advice. Right. Well, thank you very much, Dean. It's been an amazing pleasure speaking with you at uh, 12.15 in the morning now. <laughs> Luckily, we're night people. Yes. <laughs> yes. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The Writers of the Future podcast is available on SoundCloud, iTunes, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, Player FM, iHeart, and Spotify. We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network, where you can find these podcasts as well. The Writers of the Future series can be purchased wherever books are sold in the U.S., Canada, the U.K., Australia, and South Africa, and available everywhere else on Amazon. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Elrond Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to new and amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Dean. My pleasure. Thank you.